Section 10 of A Romance of Two Worlds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Amy Graymore. Chapter 7. Part 1. Zara and Prince Ivan. The sun poured brilliantly into my room when I awoke the next morning. I was free from all my customary aches and pains, and a delightful sense of vigor and elasticity pervaded my frame. I rose at once, and looking at my watch, found, to my amazement, that it was twelve o'clock in the day. Hastily throwing on my dressing-gown, I rang the bell, and the servant appeared. "'Is it actually midday?' I asked her. "'Why did you not call me?' The girl smiled apologetically. "'I did knock at Mademoiselle's door, but she gave me no answer. Madame Denise came up also and entered the room, but seeing Mademoiselle in so sound a sleep, she said it was a pity to disturb Mademoiselle.' which statement good madame denise toiling upstairs just then with difficulty she being stout and short of breath confirmed with many smiling nods of her head breakfast shall be served at the instant she said rubbing her fat hands together but to disturb you when you slept ah heaven the sleep of an infant i could not do it i should have been wicked I thanked her for her care of me i could have kissed her she looked so motherly and kind and altogether lovable and I felt so merry and well. She and the servant retired to prepare my coffee, and I proceeded to make my toilette. As I brushed out my hair, I heard the sound of a violin. Someone was playing next door. I listened and recognized a famous Beethoven concerto. The unseen musician played brilliantly and withal tenderly, both touch and tone reminding me of some beautiful verses in a book of poems I had recently read, called Love Letters of a Violinist in which the poet footnote author of the equally beautiful idol gladys the singer included in the new american copyright edition just issued and a footnote talks of his love amadi and says i prayed my prayer i wove into my song fervor and joy and mystery and the bleak the wan despair that words could never speak i prayed as if my spirit did belong to some old master who was wise and strong, because he loved and suffered and was weak. I trilled the notes and curbed them to a sigh, and when they faltered most I made them leap, fierce from my bow as from a summer sleep, a young she-deviled I was fired thereby, to bolder efforts and a muffled cry, came from the strings as if a saint did weep. I changed the theme, I dallied with the bow, just time enough to fit it to a mesh of merry tones and drew it back afresh to talk of truth and constancy and woe and life and love and madness and the glow of mine own soul which burns into my flesh all my love for music welled freshly up in my heart i who had felt disinclined to touch the piano for months now longed to try my strength again upon the familiar and responsive keyboard for a piano has never been a mere piano to me it is a friend who answers to my thought and whose notes meet my fingers with caressing readiness and obedience breakfast came and i took it with great relish then to pass the day i went out and called on mrs everard's friends mr and mrs challoner and their daughters i found them very agreeable with that easy bonhomie and lack of stiffness that distinguishes the best americans 
finding out through mrs everard's letters that i was an artiste they at once concluded i must need support and patronage and with impulsive large-heartedness were beginning to plan as to the best means of organizing a concert for me i was taken by surprise at this for i had generally found the exact reverse of this sympathy among english patrons of art who were never tired of murmuring the usual platitudes about there being so many musicians music was overdone improvising was not understood or cared for etc etc but these agreeable americans as soon as they discovered that i had not come for any professional reason to paris but only to consult a physician about my health were actually disappointed oh we shall persuade you to give a recital some time persisted the handsome smiling mother of the family i know lots of people in paris we'll get it up for you i protested half laughing that i had no idea of the kind but they were incorrigibly generous nonsense said mrs challoner arranging her diamond rings on her pretty white hand with pardonable pride brains don't go for nothing in our country as soon as you are fixed up in health we'll give you a grand soiree in paris and we'll work up all our folks in the place don't tell me you are not as glad of dollars as any one of us dollars are very good i admitted but real appreciation is far better well you shall have both from us said mrs challoner and now will you stop to luncheon i accepted this invitation given as it was with the most friendly affability and enjoyed myself very much you don't look ill said the eldest miss challoner to me later on i don't see that you want a physician oh i'm getting much better now i replied and i hope soon to be quite well who's your doctor i hesitated somehow the name of heliobus would not come to my lips fortunately mrs challoner diverted her daughter's attention at this moment by the announcement that a dressmaker was waiting to see her and in the face of such an important visit no one remembered to ask me again the name of my medical adviser i left the grand hotel in good time to prepare for my second visit to heliobus as i was getting there to dinner i made a slightly dressy toilette if a black silk robe relieved with a cluster of pale pink roses can be called dressy this time i drove to the hotel mars dismissing the coachman however before ascending the steps the door opened and closed as usual and the first person i saw in the hall was heliobus himself seated in one of the easy chairs reading a volume of plato he rose and greeted me cordially before i could speak a word he said you need not tell me that you slept well i see it in your eyes and face you feel better my gratitude to him was so great that i found it difficult to express my thanks tears rushed to my eyes yet i tried to smile though i could not speak he saw my emotion and continued kindly i am as thankful as you can be for the cure which i see has begun and will soon be effected my sister is waiting to see you will you come to her room we ascended a flight of stairs thickly carpeted and bordered on each side by tropical ferns and flowers placed in exquisitely painted china pots and vases i heard the distant singing of many birds mingled with the ripple and plash of waters we reached a landing where the afterglow of the set sun streamed through a high oriel window of richly stained glass turning towards the left heliobus drew aside the folds of some azure satin hangings and called in a low voice zara motioned me to enter i stepped into a spacious and lofty apartment where the light seemed to soften and merge into many shades of opaline radiance and delicacy 
a room the beauty of which would at any other time have astonished and delighted me, but which now appeared as nothing besides the surpassing loveliness of the woman who occupied it. Never shall I behold again any face or form so divinely beautiful. She was about the medium height of woman, but her small, finely shaped head was set upon so slender and proud a throat that she appeared taller than she actually was. Her figure was most exquisitely rounded and proportioned, and she came across the room to give me greeting with a sort of gliding, graceful movement, like that of a stately swan floating on calm, sunlit water. Her complexion was transparently clear, most purely white, most delicately rosy. Her eyes, large, luminous, and dark as night, fringed with long, silky black lashes, looked like fairy lakes where tender thoughts swam softly to and fro. Her rich black hair was arranged a la marguerite, and hung down in one long, loose, thick braid that nearly reached the end of her dress, and she was attired in a robe of deep old gold Indian silk as soft as cashmere, which was gathered in round her waist by an antique belt of curious jewel-work, in which rubies and turquoises seemed to be thickly studded. On her bosom shone a strange gem, the colour and form of which I could not determine, it was never the same for two minutes together. It glowed with many various hues, now bright crimson, now lightning blue, sometimes deepening into a rich purple or tawny orange. Its luster was intense, almost dazzling to the eye. Its beautiful wearer gave me welcome with a radiant smile and a few cordial words, and drawing me by the hand to the low couch she had just vacated, made me sit down beside her. Heliobus had disappeared." "'And so,' said Zara, how soft and full of music was her voice, "'so you are one of Casimir's patients. "'I cannot help considering that you are fortunate in this, "'for I know my brother's power. "'If he says he will cure you, you may be sure he means it, "'and you are already better, are you not?' "'Much better,' I said, looking earnestly into the lovely star-like eyes "'that regarded me with such interest and friendliness.' Indeed, today I have felt so well that I cannot realize ever having been ill. I am very glad, said Zara. I know you are a musician, and I think there can be no bitterer fate than for one belonging to your art to be incapacitated from performance of work by some physical obstacle. Poor grand old Beethoven! Can anything be more pitiful to think of than his deafness? Yet how splendidly he bore up against it! and Chopin, too, so delicate in health that he was too often morbid even in his music. Strength is needed to accomplish great things, the double strength of body and soul. Are you too a musician? I inquired. No, I love music passionately, and I play a little on the organ in our private chapel, but I follow a different art altogether. I am a mere imitator of noble form. I am a sculptress. You! I said in some wonder, looking at the very small, beautifully formed white hand that lay passively on the edge of the couch beside me. You make statues in marble like Michelangelo? Like Angelo? murmured Zara, and she lowered her brilliant eyes with a reverential gravity. No one in these modern days can approach the immortal splendor of that great master. He must have known heroes and talked with gods to be able to hew out of the rocks such perfection of shape and attitude as his David. Alas, my strength in brain and hand is mere child's play compared to what has been done in sculpture, and what will yet be done. Still I love the work for its own sake, 
and I am always trying to render a resemblance of— Here she broke off abruptly, and a deep blush suffused her cheeks. Then, looking up suddenly, she took my hand impulsively and pressed it. "'Be my friend,' she said with a caressing inflection in her rich voice. "'I have no friends of my own sex, and I wish to love you. My brother has always had so much distrust of the companionship of women for me.' You know his theories, and he has always asserted that the sphere of thought in which I have lived all my life is so widely apart from those in which other women exist, that nothing but unhappiness for me would come out of associating us together. When he told me yesterday that you were coming to see me today, I knew he must have discovered something in your nature that was not antipathetic to mine, otherwise he would not have brought you to me. Do you think you can like me? Perhaps love me after a little while." It would have been a cold heart indeed that could not have responded to such a speech as this, uttered with the pleading prettiness of a loving child. Besides, I had warmed to her from the first moment I had touched her hand, and I was overjoyed to think that she was willing to elect me as a friend. I therefore replied to her words by putting my arm affectionately round her waist and kissing her. My beautiful tender Zara, how innocently happy she seemed to be thus embraced, and how gently her fragrant lips met mine in that sisterly caress. She leaned her dark head for a moment on my shoulder, and the mysterious jewel on her breast flashed in a weird red hue, like the light of a stormy sunset. "'And now we have drawn up, signed, and sealed our compact of friendship,' she said gaily. "'Will you come and see my studio? There is nothing in it that deserves to last, I think.' Still, one has patience with a child when he builds his brick houses, and you must have equal patience with me. Come. And she led the way through her lovely room, which I now noticed was full of delicate statuary, fine paintings, and exquisite embroidery, while flowers were everywhere in abundance. Lifting the hangings at the farther end of the apartment, she passed, I following into a lofty studio, filled with all the appurtenances of the sculptor's art. Here and there were the usual spectral effects, which are always suggested to the mind by unfinished plaster models, an arm in one place, a head in another, a torso or a single hand protruding ghost-like from a fold of dark drapery. At the very end of the room stood a large erect figure, the outlines of which could but dimly be seen through its linen coverings, and to this work, whatever it was, Zara did not appear desirous of attracting my attention. She led me to one particular corner, and throwing aside a small crimson velvet curtain, said, "'This is the last thing I have finished in marble. I call it approaching evening.' I stood silently before the statue, lost in admiration. I could not conceive it possible that the fragile little hand of the woman who stood beside me could have executed such a perfect work. She had depicted evening as a beautiful nude female figure in the act of stepping forward on tiptoe, the eyes were half closed, and the sweet mouth slightly parted in a dreamily serious smile. The right forefinger was laid lightly on the lips, as though suggesting silence, and in the left hand was loosely clasped a bunch of poppies. That was all. But the poetry and force of the whole conception, as carried out in the statue, was marvellous. "'Do you like it?' asked Zara, half timidly. "'Like it?' I exclaimed. "'It's lovely, wonderful!' It's worthy to rank with the finest Italian masterpieces. Oh, no, remonstrated Zara. No, indeed. When the great Italian sculptors lived and worked, ah, uh, one may say, with the scriptures, there were giants in those days, giants, veritable ones, and we modernists are the pygmies. 
we can only see art now through the eyes of others who came before us we cannot create anything new we look at painting through raphael sculpture through angelo poetry through shakespeare philosophy through plato it is all done for us we are copyists the world is getting old how glorious to have lived when it was young but nowadays the very children are blasé and you are not you blasé to talk like that with your genius and all the world before you i asked laughingly slipping my arm through hers come confess i sincerely hope the world is not all before me she said i should be very sorry if i thought so to have the world all before you in the general acceptation of that term means to live long to barter whatever genius you have for gold to hear the fulsome and unmeaning flatteries of the ignorant who are as ready with condemnation as praise to be envied and maligned by those less lucky than you are heaven defend me from such a fate she spoke with earnestness and solemnity then dropping the curtain before her statue turned away i was admiring the vine-wreathed head of a young bacante that stood on a pedestal near me and was about to ask zara what subject she had chosen for the large veiled figure at the farthest end of her studio when we were interrupted by the entrance of the little greek page whom I had seen on my first visit to the house. He saluted us both, and addressing himself to Zara, said, Monsieur le Comte desires me to tell you, madame, that Prince Ivan will be present at dinner. End of section 10